This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Fritama from the AD program. And I'm Muling from the MR program. Welcome back to Spring 2020 season of GSAP Conversations. Today we are sharing with you a conversation between architect and educator Peggy Dima and recent alumni Abraham Murrell. GSAP recently commissioned a group of alumni to report on the current state of internships in the architecture profession. This is our third podcast to explore this theme in more depth, following conversations with Mabel Wilson and Violet Whitney. In this conversation, Dimmer discussed in depth the problematic relationship between bad fees and bad wages in the architectural profession. She advocates for unionization within the field and presents key positions of the architectural lobby. In order for students to understand the value of their work, Dimmer also suggests that academia take steps to break the cycle in the profession by discouraging our intensive studio culture and by lowering tuition for a more diverse student body. You can find a full report called Internship in the Architectural Profession on the GSAP website. The link is in this episode's description. Thanks for listening. I'm Abraham Morell, a designer in New York City and an adjunct faculty member at GSAP. I'm thrilled to be here today with Peggy Diemer, a prolific educator, architect, and author whose writing focuses on the profession of building buildings. Peggy received her PhD from Princeton, was a founding principal of Diemer and Phillips, and a professor of architecture at Yale University, and is currently a principal of Diemer Architects and a founding board member of the Architecture Lobby, an organization that advocates for the value of architecture and architectural work. The following interview on labor in the architecture profession is part of a series of conversations that put aside the built environment to focus on the labor force that designs it. Peggy, thanks so much for inviting us into your home. Thank you. So this series of podcasts on labor in the profession follows this GSAP-funded research initiative that analyzed the current state of internships in architecture, and which had a lot of support from members of the architecture lobby, two of whom we already had conversations with, uh, Violet Whitney and Mabel Wilson. Um, so I was hoping you could give us some general, and with them we, we didn't really speak too much about the actual architecture lobby itself. But so one of the reasons we were hoping to talk to you is to see if you could give us just a bit of background on the architecture lobby and how it started and what its mission is. The architecture lobby began in the summer of 2013, and I really gathered together people who I'd had casual conversations with who seemed to share concerns about our labor practices, um, how it is that we work, why we're marginalized, why we're paid so badly, why we don't um, have any social relevance. Um, So I think there were maybe 12 people at that first meeting, and it really was just anyone who had kind of indicated um, similar insights or critiques. At that meeting, at the first meeting, we decided that we needed to continue the conversation, that it probably should be fairly regular every three weeks. Then it became a question of what do we do with our insights, Um, what is our program, what are our actions. Then much later, you know, I think 2015, uh, there was a kind of deep discussion about uh, what it means to be a lobby member. Um, the creation of a membership organization, how to organize a membership organization. Then we identified uh, the idea that there would be school chapters, that there would be city chapters. 
so the chapter organization began, stewards of that, then an organiz- organizing committee. Um, so the kind of organizationally it got more complex and slightly more organized, even as we tried to keep it fairly horizontal, um, rhizomatic, and democratic. Mm-hmm. And and today, I know it's I, like, as far as I know, the architectural lobby is, is very well known amongst uh, at least graduate institutions. There's a manifesto of, of 10 points for sort of ways that that the lobby believes the uh, profession or the labor conditions for those in the profession could be better. And so I wanted to start with the some of the points of the manifesto that I guess that I find really important. Um, so I think point number one says enforce labor laws that prohibit unpaid internships, unpaid overtime, and refuse unpaid competitions. I think there's actually like a ton to unpack there. Like, fortunately, we're practicing at a time when many of these issues are being contested by workers tired of long hours and pay that's incommensurate with other professions. But something that I find is sort of like rarely talked about is how architects' actions affect the broader economy. Um, so today we're starting to see things like the hashtag Arkashame on Instagram, which is starting to starting to promote whistleblowers who call out illegally unpaid internships, which offer sort of education rather than compensation. Um, and then there's been several articles about um, unpaid competitions. Um, one by uh, Scarpa the other day, I don't know if you saw this, talking about the, the millions of dollars that are spent by architecture firms across the world to work on unpaid competitions. So I guess I was hoping you could elaborate on sort of the, maybe the like trickle up effects of underpayment for young employees and like the trickle down effects of underpayment for work, let's say. Yeah, I mean, in some way, I think you're asking about the relationship between bad fees and bad wages. Uh, And one of the first things that we talked about in the lobby was breaking that chain whereby a a graduate, for example, will say, I'm willing to take bad pay at such and such a firm because I know that they get bad wages, you know, bad fees, and that basically a, a system of sympathy for the whole system. And uh that that chain <laughs> willing willing workers you know a pool of um willing unpaid labor being a reason that people then can not demand more for their fees when when they go to clients um but also uh, a a way of insisting that if you as a firm owner really understand the value of yourself and your workers that you will have a more persuasive argument about why we should be paid more. So break that chain of both ends. Don't be willing unpaid labor and don't don't be a willing um, firm owner willing to take bad fees as you compete. So absolutely. Um, but another way of thinking about it is that if you as a firm owner don't understand the value of labor, um, you don't have a business plan. And if you don't have a business plan, you shouldn't expect to be at the table of decision-making, um, where a business plan matters and you're savvy with the business plan matters and you're going to be persuasive with a developer or a client or the city, you know, or, or anyone who's, who's in a position to make decisions. Um, yeah, if you don't demonstrate a, an understanding of the larger economy, you're marginalized. 
Right. So I think if, if those are sort of both ends of the chain, then maybe the middle would be the the point that we didn't touch on, which is the no unpaid overtime work, right? Yeah. And and um, I think it kind of relates to points eight and nine, which are change professional architecture organizations to advocate for the living conditions of architects and support research about labor rights in architecture. I know you have sometimes talked about um, work aphasia or like the willingness to work these long hours for for passion, let's say, or um, the willingness to work on great projects and sort of feel as though that is compensation rather than monetary compensation. Um, so I guess like how would you how would you tackle work aphasia within the profession or this kind of this willingness to for many to sort of sacrifice, you know, personal life and time outside of the workplace to to work on. Right. I mean, let me just start with the specific thing, which is that middle ground that you were talking about is um, no unpaid overtime. And there is a myth out there that overtime is only if you're um, being paid hourly and not on salary. That is a myth. Um, you deserve um, overtime under certain conditions of, of salary work. Um, and we seem to be happy to <laughs> be ignorant of, of that condition. Um, and there's a certain cap on what the top salary would be over which you do not deserve overtime pay. Um, there's a movement now to make that cap be higher, um, which in, under Obama was going to pass and now is not. Um, but that cutoff line, and I should know what that is, you know, it's um, the existing one, it's somewhere around 49, um, pretty much hits a lot of the salaries around which salaried architectural workers hit. Um, so we should just know <laughs> that um, it does affect salaried workers, um, and everybody should be aware of that. Um, but the larger question that you're asking about is kind of the mythology of sacrifice, a mythology that indicates that worrying about your salary, worrying about your benefits, worrying about your hours is crass because it shows that you don't have a passion for the discipline, you don't have a passion for design. Uh, that, I would call that capitalist ideology. You know, it's, <laughs> it's our version of what has been identified <laughs> as the epitome of capitalist ideology. It's easier for um, a, ca a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. Our version of it is um, don't even worry about whether you're getting paid because you're doing this sacred mission. So uh, how we actually break through that mythology, I think is partly what you're asking. Um, certainly it begins in academia, um, where I would say in general in studio culture, your passion is demonstrated by the number of all-nighters. Um, so number of all-nighters equals passion. Passion must equal talent. Talent must equal your being a star when you get out. And someone just collapses bad health behaviors, bad labor practices with, I'm going to be the next Frank Gehry. You know, that, that collapse happens fairly, fairly quickly as part of that mythology. Right. I think another another one of the points of the manifesto that is sort of I mean is probably trying to tackle this a, a well as well 
and I and that I know you guys are working on um, at the moment is point number five: establish a union for architects, designers, academics, and interns in architecture and design. Um, so I wanted to ask. I know the the lobby just put out a sort of fact sheet on unionization, and I wanted to ask if you could elaborate on where the lobby is at with unionization, whether unions exist for artists or architects or other professionals in the United States. Um, and sort of, uh, I, I know that it, it doesn't seem to occur, but, um, cooperatives do happen. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering if there are specific reasons that unionization hasn't already happened. I think there are a number of reasons that unionization hasn't hasn't happened. One is definitely the post-Cold World War, post-McCarthy blacklist, you know, that have basically labeled unions as um, the hindrance of economic growth, neoliberalism, Thatcherism, Reaganism, uh, has definitely bought into that mystique. Um, uh, that labor is is the enemy of innovation, all those things that we know. Um, so the decline of, of any labor movement, um, the decline of unionization goes way beyond the creative class or way beyond the professional class. Um, but then it's particularly a problem for intellectually for creatives and professionals to think that unionization has any role in in their work, in their organizations. Um, but we are definitely seeing that that is beginning to collapse, that the prejudice against unions is beginning to collapse. Uh, museum curators um, organizing, writers at The New Yorker organizing. In the UK, artists unionize. In, in the UK, architects are unionizing now. More and more, we're seeing both professionals and creatives um, recognize the abuse that comes when you don't have collective bargaining. All of this is about collective bargaining. Right. But um, I guess to, to play devil's advocate and the risk of sounding somewhat naive, um, can unionization apply to a profession where many architects work at smaller firms and have like varied levels of experience, different levels of compensation. I mean, typically people think of unions as being for um, trade workers of the middle class with similar job types and similar compensation. So, how um, how do those how do union structures work within architecture? Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. Uh, our our unionization campaign um, aims at large firms for the reasons that you're saying. You know, so so one needs to shift from a trade blue-collar <laughs> idea of unions to one that applies to white collars, and that shift has already happened. But it is true that unionization is much more realistic for large architecture firms than it is for small firms. Um, and that's why we have a separate campaign for small firms, which is cooperativization. Um, so the relationship of cooperativization and unionization intellectually is interesting. Um, and we have spent a lot of time around that theoretical conceptual difference. Historically, um, the unionists, um, if one kind of looks at um, Rosa Luxemburg, for example, um, as she said, cooperatives are islands of, of um, work organization within 
AC of capitalism, as in they don't bring on change, um, nor do they work against capitalism. They're a, they're a method of, of operating within them. Um, but it really was the anarchists who, who went against that idea and the anarchists who, who were fighting against state-run organizations. And so for them, unions as state-run things were a problem. And so the, the anarchists were much more open to cooperativization um, and saw cooperativization as a, um, a system of equalizing work. Um, and even, you know, the kind of communist parties felt that if, if unions were important for bringing about the revolution, post-revolution, cooperativization was was the method by which to organize the workforce. Um, so there's a complex set of relationships that go back um, to politically diverse schools of thought. Um, but now, more and more, um, there are organizations that are really trying to get bring together union unions and cooperatives. Um, and the United Steelworkers is one. You know, they're, they're a union that is very clear about trying to work with cooperatives. Right. I think in, in one of the problems that you actually mentioned this to me recently in our in our phone call was that um, there's sort of a discrepancy between the states, the FLSA, the AIA, and NCARB, um, and there's kind of like an incongruous nature um, between the professional bodies that regulate architecture, right? Um, so while the AIA advocates for our profession, NCARB, which regulates licensure for states, uh, has the mandate to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public, right? right? Um, so I guess how do these discrepancies lead to problematic conditions for for workers? Yeah, no, it's 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 interesting. Um, in some way, this goes back to antitrust laws um, and antitrust laws, which want to insist on competition. The ways to get around those laws are legislation, which is, say, if antitrust laws say you have to compete, if you want to show that that competition isn't working for the public, um, you have to change the legislation. And that's why um, NCARB, for example, that works with the state is important, because if, if you want to say competition doesn't work, they're in a position to suggest different rules. That's not true of the AIA. That's not true of NAB. Um, so that's why NCARB is kind of important. Um, but more specifically around um, the problematic of those two different organizations speaking for different voices means that uh, NCARB is skeptical when AIA says something that might actually benefit the profession and its own status and mm-hmm. um, ways that one might actually talk about better labor practices or or um, or better worker conditions or maybe not identifying interns the way they do or you know all those things um, the state will then think well we're, we're not concerned about you professionals we want to make sure that those things you're talking about are better for for the public so those are cross purposes yeah I think one thing I see as like one of the huge negative sides of underpayment that actually does affect the greater public would be the lack of diversity within the architecture field. Like, how can we 
build more socially just or racially just spaces if our if our offices are not sort of as diverse as the general public? And then how do we get our offices to be more diverse if we allow people to work without pay? Absolutely. And there are two really interesting examples around that. And one is um, when the um, Justice Department came after the professions um, around uh, fee schedules, um, because fee schedules you know, are, are the way to suggest that an architecture firm shouldn't compete against an ar- another architecture firm based on fees, but should ba- compete on qualification. Um, it was uh, the engineers who fought that. You know, that's the Justice Department comes and says, "You can't do that," and we're going to um, ha- arrange arrange a consent decree which will change your practices such to do that. And a consent decree means that you don't have to declare guilt as a profession or as a professional organization. You will just change your ways. The engineers, when they were visited by the Justice Department with a consent decree, said, nope, we're bringing you to court and we're going to tell you why. Because if you're suggesting that we don't have fee schedules and that we don't argue that we don't compete that we don't compete on fees but only on qualifications. What we're going to do as a profession is overstructure buildings. It's like you're going to come to a firm and say, do the structures. We're going to work as quickly as possible because we know that we're running a clock, and we're going to over-design it, and that does not work for the public. That is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So they challenged that, and they lost in court, and that was a big example to all the professions that you might think you have a really reasonable argument about why enforced competition doesn't work for for the public, they're going to bat you down. So that was one example. But another one was, I think, you know, I, I won't remember exactly, but let's say it was MIT and Harvard um, were suggesting that applicants to their schools um, should have a certain lower pay to get into school that would be equalized um i mean well, maybe i'll get this wrong but anyway it was so exactly so that they would get a more diverse student body um and the justice department came after them and said you can't do that um you are setting up a system that is not competitive and they said you can't do that um, again, I'm getting the specifics wrong, but this is exactly what you're saying, is that, that schools were saying we need to get a more diverse population by not having a competitive system. One final question, which is if you could choose one single point on the architecture lobby's manifesto to work out or to, to, to like really solve, which would it be? Um, like which... Which of the manifesto's points do you think are key to uh, helping advocate for the value of design? Oh, that's, that, that's, that's a tough one. Um, in some way, I would say point 10 is the most important. Point, point 10 is implement democratic alternatives to the free market system of development. In some way, it's a reminder that how we organize our work um, as designers as architectural citizens, as spatial designers, as people who shape the built environment, that it's not just so that we have better spaces and better compensation and more relevance. It's because we really want to participate in overturning a developer-driven, capitalist-driven, market-driven society. Mm -hmm. Um, And we need to be reminded of that larger mission. 
And I, I think that's important, um, particularly around um, the Green New Deal discourse right now. Uh, I think that the benefit of the Green New Deal as opposed to environmentalism or climate change or sustainability or ecological awareness, you know, whatever the other terms are, is because it recognizes the larger systemic changes that need to happen. We need to change consumption. We need to change our habits. We need to change our lifestyle uh, in order to counteract a capitalist system that is just market-driven, profit-driven. It's, it's a bigger project. Yeah. As long as it's market-driven, we are not going to have a safe, healthy environment. It just is the fact. Um, so that last one is, is, is important um, to think about where we fit into that larger program. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.